Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17. And this morning we are going to finish up John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus. Our text will be verses 24 to 26. You know, this chapter is really a great privilege for all believers. A privilege in which we see uh, in, the, in the inner court, if you will, in the Holy of Holies, the communion between the Father and the Son, the things that our Lord prays for inevitably, of course, have the affirmative on the end of the Father as He delights in the Son to grant Him the things that He has prayed for. We went over so much in these these past couple of weeks when it comes to this chapter that just fill our hearts with such great adoration for our Lord, considering this is the night and he's, this is the night he's going to be betrayed. He's going to go through the mockery of a trial. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be crucified on the next day. And the very things that he is praying for, aside from himself, he prays for his disciples and he prays for all the people who believe through them which includes all of us, all across the centuries who would believe the night before he gives his life, he is praying for them, for us. This great intercession on the part of our high priest, the things that he has prayed for thus far have these requests. These are not only requests by the son, but these are really marks of, of the church. The very things that should exist within the church. The joy. The peace that he speaks of. The protection of his people in the midst of their mission in the world. The sanctification that comes through knowing him. Being sanctified in his word. Last Lord's Day we had discussed the fifth mark of a church which is unity. Having unity in the body of Christ. And we had Went over a number of different things there. How do we have unity? What kind of unity are we referring to? And really, for all of these other things that have been spoken of, Jesus' prayer really culminates in the very things that, that keeps it all together. Because the emphasis in these verses that we are going over this morning is that of love. The sixth mark of a church is love. Now think of this. He has requested that we have his joy, his peace, his sanctifying work, his protection, his unit, the unity that is based upon he and the Father. And now the love that is founded upon the, the love that exists between the Father and the Son. These should be present within the body of Christ. These are the very things that he's praying for before he goes to the cross. Now, if these are things that he is praying for right before he goes to the cross to endure the righteous wrath of his Father, these are things that we need to give our attention to. And to see the importance that these should be within the body of Christ. These should be within this local church. Not just for the other local churches that are out there that they should exist in as well, but in this local church. In this local body of believers. Do we have that joy? Do we have that peace? Are we seeing that growth, that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives? 
Are we seeking to perform the mission that Christ has given us to the world? Do we have that unity and do we have that love? You know, for so many churches, and this is the sad part. These are things that we talked about last week, but for so many churches, people just want to come in, stay for the service. They come and then they're immediately out. They don't want to fellowship with no one. They don't want to talk to no one. They don't want to have any kind of relationships with others. But when you do that, you don't have unity with people. You don't have fellowship with people. You don't have that closeness with people. You definitely don't have that love that should exist for the body of Christ. The the, the church should be manifesting these very things. Because after all, these are marks of a church. These are the request of the Son to the Father. And these particular qualities that we've been going over that are, that's culminating in, in this emphasis on love is centered around our love and devotion for the Lord. If we have our love and devotion for the Lord, then that should be manifested to the body of Christ as well. The things that Jesus is praying for are the very things that he is getting ready to secure for all believers. And yet... The very things that he has secured for them and the very things that are applied to them through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit of God is often absent from them. That's the, that's the sad reality at times. We don't recognize and see the joy that we have and the peace that we have and the love that we should have. Any of these, we just don't see it. When they should be there, they have been secured for us. You know, people talk about all the time, you know, I wish that I, you know, I was the object of somebody's love. I wish this one loved me or I wish that one loved me. Within the body of Christ, that should not be a question. Within a local church, that shouldn't be a question. You shouldn't have to question whether people love you or not. Because if it is a true church of the Lord, then that love is going to be there. And it's going to be for you and for you to show that love to others. But this kind of love that is spoken of here in this passage is not just a love that, that the world defines. It is that sacrificial quality that we find our Lord showing us, demonstrating to us through his great sacrifice for us. It is that agape love. It is that selfless, sacrificial love, that love that is in action. That's the kind of love that exists within the church. That's the kind of love that we we see manifested from the Lord to us. You know, I was reading one theologian as he was talking about when they were uh, writing the Greek Septuagint, when they were translating the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, that there were a number of words that they could have used when speaking of God's love to His people. You have the word storge, which is really that parental love, that fondness love. You have phileo, which is that affectionate brotherly love. You have eros, which is where we get the, the romantic, erotic love. But in none of those instances, when speaking of the love of God to the people of God, none of those was good enough. But one word was coined in order to demonstrate all of God's love that encompasses everything toward his people, and that was agape love. That's the word that was used in the Greek Septuagint. That's the word that comes over into the New Testament to describe the love of God to his people and the love that the people have for one another. This is a love that is from God. It is a love that is, that he's the source of this love. We're the objects of this love. 
And this is the love that we love one another with. It is not a, a worldly love. And so, if we consider the, just really what all encompasses that kind of love, that selfless, sacrificial love towards one another, we see instances of it within the scriptures when the Apostle Paul is saying to prefer one another above yourselves and to look out for the interest of others rather than yourselves. And, and all of that, that's, that's selflessness, that's sacrificial that's the kind of love that we're talking about here. And the question that we really have to come back to is, is, do we love one another with that kind of love? How great is our love, that agape love for one another? Do we only love those that love us? Do we only love those that are easy to love? Do we love those that are difficult to love? You know, because of the love of God, we have so many blessings that have come to us. Some within this particular passage that we're looking at, that the love of God, that agape love shown to us, grants us that great assurance in Christ. We have the fullness of the love of God towards us, in spite of ourselves. Ultimately, that love culminates in our glorification, which is referenced in there. Think of all of these things that that were the benefits of, and then how can we withhold that toward one another? That's really the question. A church is only as strong as its people. And for the people of God, we have to get our minds wrapped around what real, real biblical love is so that we can truly manifest that in the local church and honor Christ in doing so with our relationships to one another. I pray as we work through this passage that we would see our need to love each other with that kind of a selfless love. And, of course, that our, our thoughts and our, our minds will be captivated by the love that God has shown us. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is John chapter 17, verses 24 to 26. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us hear the words of the living God. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have of seeing this, this prayer, this complete prayer in this passage. Thank you. For the work of our Lord Jesus, thank you for the comfort that is given to us, knowing that he prayed for all of his people. And may we indeed carry out and seek the things that he has prayed for even more so. Not just toward those that are outside the church, but especially those that are within the church. That we would cultivate these qualities in each other through the knowledge of God, through, through your word being ministered to each other. Oh, Father, lift our eyes towards you. Let us see the glory of of our Lord Jesus, let us be captivated by your love. Thank you so much for the great grace you've shown us. 
when we were so undeserving. Be glorified this day. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Again, this is really this is really the climax of the, the upper room discourse, this particular prayer. And again, this prayer is most likely being prayed by Jesus as they are on their way to the Mount of Olives, going toward uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. He is praying in the hearing of his people. Uh, it's, it's a prayer, again, that has just really, uh, for, for many of us, have just captivated us to see the things that Jesus has been praying for and to see the love of the Son toward the Father. To see his love toward his own. And that is indeed manifested once again here. Our high priest is once again praying for his people. And it is, it is so astonishing. So captivating. What it is that he prays for here. As he's been going over the joy and the peace and the protection and sanctification. All of those things. And here culminating in this request. And yet the wording here is a little bit different than what it has been previously. There's more of a, an authority here on the part of Christ as he is praying to the Father at this request. But you see the delight that he takes in those that the Father had given to him. Look at this. He says there, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Now this is the very thing that Jesus had also told his disciples Back in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is the very thing that he's praying to the Father. Father, I desire... I will, some of your translations may say, I will, that those whom you have given me be with me where I am. And that particular word of I will or I, I desire, depending on your translation, really carries with it that, that, that delight that he takes in those that are his, that has been given to him. He delights in them. And by his delight, he says to the Father, I desire, I will, that they be with me. Now, this is different from his request that he said earlier. If you look back in some of, these, some of these other passages here in John 17, he says in verse 9, for example, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. I ask, he says. In verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but the implication is I ask you to keep them from the evil one. And in verse 20, Again, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. He has come to the Father. I ask you, Father. I ask you, Father. But here, he says, I will. I desire that those whom you have given me to be with me. That's much stronger language. Now think of that. That, that kind of language that he's using, which is different from what he has previously... I mean, think of the time in which he's in the garden and he's praying to the Father. 
and he's agonizing over what is getting ready to happen, he doesn't say, Father, I will that this cup pass from me. He says, if it's possible, if it's possible, let this cup, cup pass from me. But here, when he's praying not for himself, not on behalf of himself, but he's praying on behalf of his people, he says, Father, I will, I desire that those whom you have given me to be with me. That is very strong language. One writer says this, He has the legal right to declare his saving will in the presence of God the Father. And his saving will is that for all that the Father has given to him to be with him where he is. Now we know that everything that Jesus prays for is in, is in accordance with the will of the Father. There's never any, any contradicting wills here. And that in itself is a great assurance for the people of God. He doesn't, he doesn't really say, I ask, as he has before. He doesn't say, I hope that they will be with me. I hope that it's in, it's in agreement with you for them to be with me. I will, I desire, because he delights in those that the Father has given to him. And so he uses that strong language when it comes to praying on behalf of his people. And it's amazing to me that he prays in this kind of a manner that he desires all that the Father has given to be with him. Because if you really just think about it, I mean, why does he delight in us? Why does he delight in us? You know you better than anyone else. I know me better than anyone else. I know the things that I think and the things that go through my mind and the and the emotions that I have at times that are just blatantly sinful and wrong. And any sin, whether it's aimed at somebody else or whatever, is always sin against the Lord. And in spite of that, in spite of yourselves, in spite of myself, He still delights in us. Why? Is there anything good that He can delight in? In and of ourselves, no, there is not. There's nothing. Because left to ourselves, what are we apart from his work in us? We're dead. Spiritually dead. Unable to subject ourselves to the law of God. Unable to please God. All of this. So what does he delight in? And really, the only thing that we can really come up with is that he delights in us because we are His reward from the Father to Him for His atoning work. That's why He delights in us. We are His, we, we, we are indeed the reward of His atoning sacrifice. We have been gifted to the Son by the Father. That's why He delights in us. Because the Father in ages past, and actually, let's just look at that passage in Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, and we'll just read the <clears throat> first couple of verses. And listen to this. This is, this is very interesting, what the implications of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He begins, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised 
long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Now the Apostle Paul is recounting his ministry of what he's been called to. He's been called for the faith of those chosen of God, for the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, and the hope of eternal life. This really encompasses the entirety of ministry itself as our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. But he adds this, and the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. And that means before times eternal. Now what is he, what is he talking about? The Lord made a promise long ages ago, before times eternal, God made a promise and he cannot lie. And that promise is manifested at the proper time, specifically here through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, preaching the gospel for the faith of those chosen of God. But it has to go back to this. Before times eternal, who's there? Who's, who did the Lord make a promise to? No one was there. The angelic hosts weren't there. But when you look back, and you see from a number of passages of Scripture what theologians refer to as the covenant of redemption, you see that in the covenant of redemption, the agreement among the triune God of, of redemption of His people that the Father has gifted to the Son a bride. Perhaps what Paul is referring to there. In long ages, long ages ago, before times eternal, the father had promised the son a bride. And that bride is being brought in through the proclamation of the gospel by the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God. If you go to the book of Revelation and you look in Revelation chapter 13, for example, the scriptures tell us that our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Before the first speck of dirt was ever made, our names were written in the Lamb's book of life. And it's like as... A scene, perhaps, we don't, want to, we don't want to go too far here, of course, but it's almost as if you have the Father who has chosen His elect for the Son, has gifted the Son, and He gives the Son the Lamb's book of life with all the names of His bride, the complete bride. And He has promised before times eternal a bride for the Son that is that the Son is dying for, that the Son is giving His life for. And because we are the reward of His atoning sacrifice, a gift from the Father to the Son, He delights in His people. And He delights in them on account of what He's getting ready to accomplish for them. His people are, are His reward. I mean, if you think about Psalm 2, Psalm 2 verse 8, for example, that Messianic Psalm the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance at the very ends of the earth as your possession. This is the gift to the Son. This is the inheritance of the Son. And He delights. He delights in those that the Father has given to Him. He delights in them so much that He uses that language with His Father, not as a request, not as asking, but Father, I desire. I want them with me. And not only do I want them with me where I am, I want them to see my glory. I want them to behold my glory. Surely the disciples during the earthly ministry of Christ 
truly beheld the glory of, of Christ. As Christ, everything that he says and everything that he does, he is manifesting the very nature and character of the Father to all. And that is a manifestation of his glory. Some of the disciples got to see him clothed with splendor and majesty on the Mount of Transfiguration. No doubt his glory was manifested during his earthly ministry. But he's talking perhaps about something different here. His preexistent glory. And clothed with splendor and majesty, seated high and lifted up, ruling and reigning is our great God. That they may behold his glory. I desire that they be with me for this purpose. This glory that you have given me. That's the glory that he's been praying for in the earlier part of John 17. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. We had talked about how it is not a case in which the Father mediates glory to the Son or mediates deity to the Son or mediates deity to the Spirit of God. It is the fact that Christ has laid aside his divine prerogatives, his, his divine privileges. He has taken the form of a servant, and by him doing so, the Father is going to exalt him and clothe him with that, with that majesty and that splendor upon his resurrection. It is that particular glory, not as it was before. We remember beforehand, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, in his pre-existent state, was spirit, just like the Father, just like the Holy Spirit. But here it's going to be a little different when he ascends back to the Father because he has added humanity to his being. He hasn't laid aside his divinity, none of that. He is still fully God, but he has added humanity to his being. And so he is being resurrected as the God-man. And he is ascending into heaven now to be clothed with splendor and majesty as the God-man. Because when Christ is resurrected from the dead in a physical glorified body, that is the body he will forever be in. And we will see him in heaven. And he prays to the Father... I desire that those that you have given me be with me, that they may behold my glory. Now think of, think of that delight that he has in us and the delight that we should have in him as a result of what he is praying for on our behalf. One writer says this, the glory and happiness of heaven to the elect will consist much in being in Christ's company in whom they delight so much on earth to follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth and to enjoy him fully without separation anymore. For so it is here described in Christ's prayer that they may be with me where I am. You know, when we get to heaven, you know, so many people when they talk about getting to heaven, they want to see this person, and they want to see that person. They want to see the streets of gold. They want to see the gates of pearl, and on and on we go. The most magnificent thing in heaven is not the streets of gold. It's not the gates of pearl. It's not any of that, but the majesty and the splendor of our Lord. That's our delight. None of these other benefits that we receive in heaven... As great as they are, they don't compare to him. The infinite gift of Christ to his people is that we may behold him and behold his glory. 
And that's the very thing that he's praying for. Again, praying in agreement with the will of the Father. And just think of the assurance that that gives us. Not one of us will be lost because he delights in us and he has prayed for us and secured our redemption by what he is getting ready to endure because he says to the Father, I want all that you have given me to be with me and none will be lost. Not one. That we may behold his glory. To see my glory which you have given me for you love me. Before the foundation of the world, the Father delights in the Son that He grants the Son His desires and His requests. That is that mutual love that exists among the triune God. The Father withholds nothing from the Son. Nothing. But delights in Him. So that what the Son has requested of the Father will indeed come to pass. When we talk about unity beforehand, we have talked about the unity that exists among the triune God. That there are not separate wills within the Godhead. There is one, and it is perfect. In perfect agreement among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what the Son prays for is in agreement with the will of the Father. Now, as he is praying on behalf of his people, and he's praying that they may see his glory... In verse 25, he says, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. Again, he is bringing into the prayer once again the people of God. He acknowledges that the world has not known you. The world is in rebellion. The world claims to know God. The world does not know God because the only way to know God is through the Son. He says, the world has not known you, but I have. And he refers to him and he acknowledges him to be the righteous, the righteous God that he is. For Christ knows the very depths of the Father, as the Father knows the very depths of Christ. And the scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man that is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Christ knows the very depths of the Father. And he refers to him as the righteous Father. The one who is perfectly just in everything that he does. And he appeals to the one who is perfectly just, who is altogether holy. The request that he has made thus far. But in doing so, he adds this in. He says, yet I have known you and these have known in spite of what the world has done thus far. These have known that I came from you. You know, the very thing that Jesus doesn't bring up in any part of this prayer to the Father on behalf of His people, he doesn't, say, he doesn't say anything about what had previously taken place in the upper room. He doesn't talk about how they were arguing amongst themselves as to who was the greatest in the kingdom. He doesn't bring up anything as far as them being unwilling to wash each other's feet because no one is going to take the form of a servant. He doesn't bring up that Peter's going to be denying him three times in just a few hours. He doesn't bring up the failures. He doesn't bring up any of that. But he brings his, his bride up to his, his father and he says, These believe that you, that you sent me. They know that I came from you. And when you're looking at the entirety of what he is praying for, that they would be where he's at, that they would see his glory, that they would receive his love, and he's praying this to a righteous God, 
He doesn't bring up any of the faults of his people because he is getting ready to take care of that. And that the Father isn't going to be looking upon us in view of our failures, but he's looking upon us in view of the righteousness of his Son. That's that great love that is being manifested thus far. That in spite of us, in spite of our failures that we every day commit, and in our rebellion, when the Father looks at us, He loves us with that fullness of love that He has for the Son. That's the great, that's the great blessing as well, that the Father loves us with the same love that He loves the Son of God. Because we're in the sun. And the very thing that he acknowledges. As far as the world that is in rebellion. He says these have known that you sent me. And because they have known. Because they believed. Then their salvation is secure. And they will be where Christ is at. And they will behold his glory. And it's not just for them. But he began to include the others that believe through the word earlier on in, in verse 20. That this is across the board for all who believe. That this is what is required. This is the only thing. Is repenting and believing. And by God's grace and bringing this about within us to begin with. We are forever secured in the Son. By his offering, we are made perfect in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the Father. The righteous God is going to justify sinners on account of his Son. Acknowledging that he is indeed righteous, it is necessary that sin be dealt with, and Christ is going to do that on behalf of all that he has given. So that, as Paul says, that God can remain just. And justify those that are in Christ. And when you're looking at all of that. I mean. On what basis is any of this done? And I, we go back to these truths. Because it is, it is so easy to fall into the trap of. Well I did. I did this. Perhaps God's seen what the potential was. Or any of that other stuff that we can, we can come up with. And the answer is there was nothing Nothing in us, nothing foresaw, nothing. But because he decided, he extended his grace, he decided to make us the objects of his love for no other purpose than to be the reward for the son's atoning sacrifice to give us as a bride to the son. Nothing in us because we are in constant rebellion. We couldn't live a perfect day. And yet God's love has not Diminished, not one degree. Because he loves us in spite of ourselves. Because he loves us because of the Son. And because he loves us, our salvation is secure. I mean, if you think about that wonderful passage of Romans chapter 8. Passage we know very familiar. It's very familiar to us. Probably gives us butterflies knowing we're turning to it. 
Romans chapter 8, beginning verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Those whom he foreknew, those whom he loved beforehand. And the idea of that, that foreknowing, it's a verb by the way, it's not a noun. It's foreknowing that, that is describing that intimate love. Not just a general love, but an intimate love that God has for his people. And if you go to Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us. It's grounded in the very love of God. That we are the benefits of the positive side of predestination, if you will, which is election. Because he, in his, by his own sovereign decree, made us the objects of his love. We are predestined to become conformed to the image of the Son, to be called, to be justified, and to be glorified. Now, He says, I have made known your name to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Now this is culminating in that love. We've seen it thus far. It's been throughout these verses. The extension of God's love, the manifestation of his love, because the greatest manifestation of his love is going to be what the son is getting ready to accomplish. The cross is the greatest manifestation of the love of God as well as the greatest manifestation of his justice and his wrath as well, for sure. But that love is being extended, not because of anything that we're doing, not because of any works of righteousness, because he has brought about in us a change within our hearts, granting us faith that we believe. That in itself is what is, what is securing uh, that justification in the sight of God on account of what the Son has done and faith in him, the faith that justifies. And that is all centered and founded upon our knowledge of God. That love that he's referring to. That love that we should have for him. That love that is manifested to each other. Is grounded in the very love of God. The love that the father has to the son. The son has to the father. Grounded in our knowledge of him. I have made known your name to them. That is made known his very character, his very attributes. And through his character and his attributes being put on display for us, especially considering what Christ has brought about and the redemption of his people, understanding the holiness and the righteousness of God, by that knowledge that, that works within us a greater love and a greater adoration and a greater commitment to him. That is, that is that sanctifying work of the Spirit of God allowing us to behold the majesty of our God. That our hearts will be overflowing with, with love for Him. Commitment, devotion, all of that. But look at what he says about this particular love that is being manifested. He says, So that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Now think of that language there. 
He doesn't, he doesn't say that this love may be with them as only being the recipients of this love, but it may be in us. That this love would be in us. This is, again, the love that we are seeing, the love that is on display, the love that the Father has shown to us and that the Son has shown to us is not just the love that may be with us, that we can see, wow, what a great love that He has for us, but to be in us, that it would be manifested out of us. It is a love that is in action. A love that we have received is a love that we manifest. So great a love that we have received. So great a love that we ought to show to each other. Because that is the foundation of that love. That is the ground of that kind of love. He loves us in spite of ourselves. He loves us even though there was nothing good in us to love. But He loves us in spite of it. There was no conditions by which we met that he would be the that he would grant his love to us or his grace to us or his kindness to us and any of that and that is the same kind of love selfless sacrificial love that should be in us that is manifested towards others we aren't to love each other just because it's easy to love one another some people are more easy to love than others or we don't love those that only love us we don't we don't just we don't just enjoy being the objects of somebody else's love We are to pursue this kind of love that has been shown to us. Selfless, sacrificial love. Doing for each other. Ministering to one another. Serving one another. You know that chapter that is often read at weddings. 1 Corinthians 13. The wedding that was here last last Saturday. Actually had these little... These little billboards that were all down the aisle there of all these characteristics. And I didn't, I didn't say anything because I was like, well, it's not really the kind of love that is supposed to necessarily exist in the marriage, but it's okay. In 1 Corinthians 13, this love that is being uh, written about here is not a love necessarily between a husband and a wife. This love is what is to exist among the people of God. He says, beginning of verse 1, it's better to read from verse 1 down because we can see the the necessity of love, what, what needs to be there. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, But do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. That is so important does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And he goes on. This is the kind of love that exists within the church, or is to exist within the church. That love that is kind and patient. The kind of love that that doesn't keep an account of a wrong suffered. Because why? We are looking towards the others. We are looking away from ourselves. We are looking at each other. 
in the interest of each other. And a church must have that kind of love. We were talking, me and um, another brother were talking one day last week about a certain church in our area that has had probably two or three splits within the past five years, whatever it's been. And they cannot come together, they cannot agree on anything, and so they split. One split happened, they had another come in, not too long after that, another split happens. And it was only just bringing to light the very difficulties that they had that they did not deal with as a church. They did not have true unity in the church because they didn't have real love in the church. If they had love, as they should, they would have preferred the interest of others above their self and their own desires. But because of that, it's split two or three times now. Love has to be central within a church among the people of God. Because think of this, dear friends. If things get as bad here as they are in other nations, we're going to need each other. James Montgomery Boyce says this. It's a little lengthy, but just bear with me here. He says, we see the preeminence of love readily if we look at it in reference to the other marks of the church. What happens when you take love away from them? Suppose you take joy and subtract love from it. What do you have? You have hedonism. You have an exuberance in life and its pleasures, but without the sanctifying joy found in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Subtract love from holiness. What do you get? You get self-righteousness. The kind of virtue that characterized the Pharisees of Christ's day. By the standards of the day, the Pharisees lived very holy lives, but they did not love others and were ready to kill Christ when he challenged their standards and actually did kill him. They were hypocrites. Take love from truth, and you have bitter orthodoxy. The kind of teaching that is right, but that does not win anyone. Take love from mission, and you have imperial, imperialism. It is colonialism in, a, in ecclesiastical garb. We have seen much of that in recent history. Take love from unity, and you have tyranny. He says, on the other hand, oh, excuse me, he said, this develops into a hierarchical church where there is no compassion for people nor desire to involve them in the decision-making process. That is one side of it. On the other side, express love in relation to God and men. And what do you find? You find all the other marks of a church following. What does love for God lead to? Joy. Because we rejoice in God and what he has so overwhelmingly done for us. What does love for the Lord Jesus Christ lead to? Holiness. Because we know that we will see him one day and we will be like him. Therefore, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What does love for the word of God lead to? Truth. Because if we love the word, we will study it and therefore inevitably grow into a fuller appreciation and realization of God's truth. What does love for the world lead to? Mission. We have a message to take to the world. Again, where does our love for Christian brothers and sisters lead us? To unity. Because by love we discern that we are bound together in that bundle of life that God himself has created within the Christian community. Every other benefit that we have, have been talking about thus far within these past couple of weeks are held together by having love. 
If we have love without truth, we have that bitter orthodoxy that, that Christ reprimands the church of Ephesus for in the book of Revelation. We want to get things right, and we should, but we have to get things right amongst each other and promoting in one another love as well and community, that fellowship that is centered upon our knowledge of the truth. This is, the, this is that agape love, dear friends. We cannot emphasize that enough. God is the source of this love. It is revealed in Christ to us. Now, what are some things that we can do for one another to manifest that love? What things can you do for one another to manifest that kind of a love? You know, it could be some very simple things that maybe we take for granted. How about this one? Just giving each other a little bit of time with one another to listen. Instead of being so quick to leave or to go on about something else, and I understand that you know, we have some, some busy lives, and I'm the first to admit it. Sometimes I'm in a hurry to do something, and I think, I only have a, I only have a minute. Oh, what are we going to talk about? But at the same time, it should be that we sacrifice our time for one another. Because if the other is going through some difficulties and just needs a brother or sister to come alongside them, then that is our responsibility to one another to set aside that time. To love one another in that kind of a way. And to listen Listen to one another. Not to be so quick to give a reply. Sometimes we like to just listen for a moment and we find something we want to reply to so we don't listen to anything else and we go right to that as soon as they take a breath. We need to listen to each other. We need to share with one another. Sharing in our lives with one another is showing love to one another. Us sharing, my, me sharing my life with you, you sharing your life with me. We're coming alongside, we're growing together, we're learning of each other. That agape love does produce that affectionate love. We just have to give each other the time to grow together in relationship. Sometimes on the Lord's Day, it's, it's a little difficult to do that because we're here to worship, we're here to honor the Lord. But time needs to be set aside that we can, that we can grow in fellowship with one another too. And serving one another. Ministering to one another. Weeping with those who weep. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. Building each other up. These are things that we can do for one another. Very simple things. That we can do for one another. To begin to show love for one another. In that kind of a way. Is that too much? Is it too much to sacrifice a little bit of time for one another. Think of, again, everything that Christ has accomplished for you and I. The greatest demonstration of love is that Christ has died for the ungodly to bring us to Him. How can we withhold that to somebody else? especially brothers and sisters in Christ. Do we love with that kind of a love? And if we don't, and we see where we fail in that, then praise God, His mercies are new every morning. Let us begin to do that. Let us begin to love one another like that, to share with one another and to listen to one another and to serve one another and to minister to one another 
Let us indeed be a church that honors Christ by manifesting the love that Christ has shown us to each other. It's not too much to ask in light of everything that he's done for us. He's withheld nothing from us. But he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Let us give to one another then. Let us love one another with this kind of love that has been shown to us. One writer says this, and I'll close. William Hendrickson says, When the love of God descends from heaven to dwell in the hearts of men, it should be returned to him again in the form of thanksgiving. It's a love that comes to us, a love that goes to one another, a love that goes right back to him. Let us be praying uh, for our church to continue to grow in that love. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you so much for this portion of your word. Thank you for all that it teaches us of our responsibilities to each other and how we ought to delight in doing so as Christ delighted to, to give himself for his people that you have given to him. Let us delight in one another and delight in serving one another, delight in loving one another. We pray that the Spirit of God would do a mighty work within us to cultivate that, that we would grow even more and and, and be a church that, that honors you. Thank you so much for all that you have sent here, Father. May we, we continue to build one another up, continue to point each other to the truth of God, teach each other of the knowledge of God. Father, we owe you everything. And for what Christ has prayed for, Father, let it be important to us as well. To you be the praise, the glory, the honor, and all things, Holy Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Now the God's people said, Amen. If everyone would please stand with me.